0: We're going to be in John 2. We're going to spend uh, two weeks on this little story. Um, uh, Jimmy's going to come talk more about uh, some stuff with it next week. Um, as we have this graduation Sunday and we've got ceremonies and celebrations, traditions and milestones, uh, it, it's interesting to me that we're, we're thinking about how these seasons come in and, and these different celebrations and rites of passages we have in culture. And the Hebrews had all sorts of those sort of things that God had given them to remind them of who he was. Um, um, last week we talked about Jesus turning water into wine, and we emphasized that wasn't just a neat party trick. There was so many nitty gritty uh, Bible geeky details in that story. You can go back and listen to it; it's on our podcast or, or on Facebook. Uh, I think it's also on YouTube. But we kind of unpacked all these little details: the sets of seven, what the purification jars would have been, why wine is meaningful, and the theme of wine all through Scripture—the celebratory nature of it. But in general, we discussed that Jesus is the fulfillment. John wants us to understand that he's the only one who can purify and make us have a right relationship with the Lord. And that Jesus is the celebration. He's the best wine. He's the one coming to fulfill all the promises that he's going to be everything. As we say each week, Jesus is everything. Say, Jesus is everything. Yeah. Now say it again with passion. Good enough. So This week, we've got this weird thing where uh, Jesus gets angry, and tables are flipped, and uh, there's a whip, and he's driving people out, and it just is such a wild story. Uh, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we've got some of these. It's just the Gospel of John with a journal in it. You can go grab one over there, take it home with you, slowly read through John, because Jesus says he's life. He's truth, and so why not read his words? I mean, it would sound to logical reasoning that he is the smartest person that ever lived. He's the best person that ever lived, and so why aren't you reading his words every day? What kind of fool would we be to believe that Jesus is everything and not read his words every day? Like, come on. And so, sorry for the subtle guilt trip, but I have to tell myself that every day. I have to, hold on, wait a minute. If this is the best man that lived, I don't really care what Elon Musk has to say. I need to know what King Jesus has to say, right? And so, if you want to grab a Bible and turn to John 2, there's also a hard-backed black one uh, in the seat in front of you. Uh, we'll have some scripture on the screen, but I would encourage you to get scripture in front of your eyes, because what I say comes and goes. I'm excitable. Uh, I'm a hype man. I'm loud. I'll flap my arms. I might do an accent at some point accidentally, but all those things come and go. The word of the Lord lasts forever, so let's get involved in that. I want us to consider how uh, Jesus was just at this wedding, and he was filling the tables, proverbially speaking. He was filling them with the best wine, with all the right celebrations, and then now he's not filling the tables, he's flipping the tables. What a pastor thing to say, huh? Ugh, I feel weird saying that, but I think it's so fascinating, because if you read John's story, it's like, wait a minute, I want the Jesus who fills tables, Isn't you said Jesus is everything. He's gracious and loving and kind. And here he is just just flipping tables, just going, just, he's so upset. Let's read about it. Let's go. John chapter two. We're going to read it. And then we're going to pray starting in verse 13. This week, we're going to go 13 through 17. I'm going to unpack a lot of things there. Next week, we'll cover the uh, latter half of this story. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd guide us today as we read your word. We ask that your spirit would bring to memory all things Jesus has taught us, that your spirit would teach us all things. May your word bear its weight on us and we walk away those who follow Jesus, who love you, love others. Thank you for being with us. Amen. Uh, and I don't know if it's just in light of uh, graduation Sunday or um, because I'm improvical, cheesy and annoying, but I just decided, you know, let's do something a little different. There's three things that need to be talked about ultimately in this today. We've got Passover, we've got temple, and we've got anger. Man, I am so bad at writing. How often do I write on this and make fun of myself for writing badly? Is it every time? 100% good. Okay. And 100% of the time, am I bad at it? Yes. Okay. Oh, some of you are so kind. Okay. Okay. So we've got Passover, temple, anger, right? So, um... As graduates are going and they're choosing their own adventure, and some of you who are growing up, you choose your own adventure in life, you read those books, I didn't read the books, I looked at the options and just went through them. There's a popular show by Bear Grylls now where you like electronically get to choose your adventure. My son loves it, like they watch it and they're like, he, Bear Grylls is doing something, he's like, oh, should I go up the mountain with a rope or should I go free the monkeys? And you pick one and he's like, ah, the monkeys ate us alive or whatever, and so then you got to start over, and it's a weird analogy, but who expected to hear that the monkeys were going to eat you alive at church this morning? Welcome Welcome to Memorial. Here we are. So uh, we're going to vote. This is me getting out my little imp- trophies from improv when I was in high school and college. Like this is me just getting out that flavor every few years. You're going to vote. And this is the order and we're going to go whatever order you want. My notes are all over the place. So we're just, we got a time cap here and you're going to tell me what you want to hear most of. Are you ready? So here in a minute, I'm going to say, who wants this one? Who wants this one? Who wants this one? And you vote and we're going to unpack them. We're going to unpack all three. But ideally, probably the one you pick first, I'm probably going to talk most about because I'm an excitable guy and I run out of steam like everyone else. Can you handle this? Have you ever got to choose your own sermon? Here we are. Maybe this is the worst idea. This might be like the worst moment for you. Please don't judge all of uh, your interpretation off this moment. Maybe this goes great, but all the other shepherds are like, what are you doing, man? (laughs) What's happening? This is, all right, raise your hand if you want to talk about Passover first. Like five of you. Okay, wow. No one's excited about that. Raise your hand if you want to talk about temple first. Okay, yeah. Raise your hand if you want to talk about anger first. Yeah, that wins. I thought so. What did I say, Mr. Adam? Talk about anger first. Fantastic. Because Jesus is mad. What's the deal? Zeal. For your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is angry. He's clearly angry in this situation. What, uh, what is anger? There's a lot of ways you can define anger. I spent way too much time trying to find a good definition of anger, and I found a definition that I believe that all sorts of psychologists, all sorts of neurologists, all sorts of people on both ends, secular or Christian, that they would agree with, and I think all of us could agree with, because anger in itself is not evil. Anger in itself is not evil. Anger in itself is is not evil or sinful. And it's important that you know that. We've said up here before that anger is a secondary emotion, right? Anger is normally something in response to something else. There's something deeper. But also, it is true that anger can be so close to the primary emotion that it's really indistinguishable. Examples on that here in a minute. Here's anger. Anger is a spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and body when our will is thwarted. Anger is a spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and body when our will is thwarted. The reason I like that definition is that it doesn't give leeway either way. What is your will? What if your will is the will of the fathers? Okay, that'd be probably pretty good because he's eternally right. What if your will is the will of your angry mom's right now. Ah, okay, I don't know. Maybe angry mom doesn't win every time, you know? I don't know. So uh, there's a couple ideas here. This can be selfish in nature and lacking self-control. So you're driving and that person, to did this last week. I'm about to say something about a Honda Odyssey. What is wrong with me? Two weeks in a row. Skip the driving analogy. You all understand what it means to be mad while you're driving. Man, I'm painting myself too badly. Um, what about when you just like yell at people? Something happens. Man, this happened to me this week. I just got sick of the circumstances surrounding me. I raised my voice. I said something harsh towards my daughter and I just didn't like it. I had to apologize to her and I was just snippy. I even then tried to process my wife and I was still being snippy and rude. I had to apologize. Like, man, I'm, I'm angry because my will, David's will is thwarted. I'm in control. I'm king of the universe. Shut up, you peons and listen to me. That was the idea, right? Um, we hit others. We, I don't know if you hit things. Listen, this is not a sermon on anger. If we were gonna just do a sermon on anger, we'd read what Jesus says about anger in Matthew 5. Listen to me. If you're an angry person, if you're sitting next to someone who's an angry person, love them enough to tell them that they're an angry person. Love them enough to say, listen, your default posture is anger. We need to look at what Jesus says, and we need to deal with it, because kids are not formed by yelling at them. Marriages are not made by angry bouts of yelling. Real relationships don't get formed. No one's ever said, man, I'm so thankful for that time Mr. Wade just screamed at me. That was so meaningful and formal, I'll never forget it. Maybe you had a football coach that yelled at you once, and you remembered it. That was one time. The vast majority of time you've been yelled at, you forget. It's meaningless. It makes you feel terrible. It crushes you, because when you're being yelled at and crushed by anger, it's literally someone pushing you down in their selfishness because they believe they've been thwarted by you, and they have to now crush you. So if you're an angry person, let's deal with that. Quit letting your anger corrupt your marriage. Enough on that. Let's look at this now. Anger can also be loving in nature, connected with self-control. We've talked about uh, on Easter Sunday, we talked about this, like, uh, does human trafficking make you angry? It should. It should make you angry because it's clearly apart from what God wants. Does abortion make you angry? Does does broken marriages, does death, do you feel anger over these things? And is it sinful that you feel angry that someone you love is dead or dying? No. Because that's not the way it's meant to be. Jesus was angry, not just now, but he's also angry at Lazarus' death. We talked about that uh, Greek word that could mean both deeply moved with passion, but also angry. And it's like, what, was he deeply moved or was he angry? Yes, he was both. So anger can be both. Genuine love is compatible with anger. I like this quote from a scholar named Gerald Borshed. He said, spineless love is hardly love. When you love someone, anger may come out of you at some point because you love them. And how you deal with that anger and self-control is what actually shows if you love them or yourself, right? It's okay to be disappointed with someone you love because they're drinking alcohol every day and destroying the people around you. That's a reasonable thing to be angry about. Yelling at them, punching them, tying them to a pole so they never drink again, that's probably not a loving response. A loving response looks a lot more like suffering alongside them and finding a way to get them help, not enabling them. Speaking truth in love, as scripture would say. So, uh, Jesus was angry. Let's talk about this. Why was he angry? Look at the verses. Uh, Joe, you want to just throw back up that verse? Um, the main. Man, I'm going to make you jump all around. I'm sorry, bud. Uh, but if you want to jump back to the main verses, let's read it. So, it's the time of the Passover. And what was Jesus angry about? You can talk to me. It's okay. He found. Oh, interesting. Uh, This is a whole Bible nerd thing. But the word found, I said a couple weeks ago with disciples to look at how many times things are found in John 1. It's a theme in John. Poof, I find this. Poof, I find this. And so far, things that are found are associated to what? Disciples. Go back and read it. John chapter 1. Jesus finds disciples, and those disciples go and find their brother, or they go find this person, and they're found by Jesus. That's what's being found. Now, the next use of the word find is going to the temple. Does Jesus find authentic, true disciples in the temple? No. What does he find? Money changers. What else? Animals. Yeah. Yeah, he has money changers, animals. He's so concerned. Uh, Listen, it's, it's important to walk this through because sometimes it's taught that these people were doing something fundamentally sinful and like they were probably pocketing, lining their pockets with stuff. This practice in itself wasn't wrong. Okay, During Passover, which we'll talk about here in a minute, tons of people were coming into the city and a lot of foreigners were coming. And the temple tax that you would pay, which was something that God commanded that you honored God with, I believe it's in Exodus 29 or Exodus 30, and you would honor God with this temple tax, it had to be a pure silver, right? And so if you had other foreign currency that wasn't the pure silver that you wanted to honor God with, then you would exchange that money there. And obviously there might be merchants there trying to make an extra buck and doing that sort of thing. But in general, there was always money changers happening. Money changing wasn't a wrong thing. They were doing that, right? Selling animals was a wrong thing because if you need to make a sacrifice for atonement, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, right? Then you would not take a goat or a uh, cow or something with you all the way across hundreds of miles. You would, or even 15 miles, some of them would come, uh, that you wouldn't bring that. You would go and you would buy it at the temple. Well, the issue was, is this used to happen a little further away from the temple in the Kidron Valley. And now what's happening is it's moved tide. Do you guys know where it was now? We talked about this a couple years ago. It was moved into the Gentiles court, right? What is the Gentiles court? It's the place where outsiders get to commune with God. We'll talk about that when we get to temple here in a minute. But they are supposed to be communing with God. And Jesus says, you've turned this into a house of trade. This is my father's house and you've turned it into a house of trade. What Jesus is mad about is the transactional relationship. He's angry. Because these people have turned his house, his father's house, into a market. What's the purpose of a market? To sell things, to buy things, to make money. That's the purpose of a market. What's the purpose of a temple? We'll get there in a minute. You didn't vote on that. That's your fault, not mine. But, uh, but so we talk about the purpose of a temple is to dwell with God, right? And so they've turned that, and Jesus is so fired up because they're supposed to be with God right now. They're supposed to be worshiping him. And here's the thing. This reminded Jesus. If you read the whole Bible with us last year, if you've ever read the whole Bible, this sounds like the problem with humans from the beginning. You can be like God. You can decide good from evil. You're the one who decides what worship is. You're the one who decides what's good for you. You do whatever you want. In fact, we love this transactional thing. It's a very Western thing we get into, but it's all through human history. We love the idea of paying and exchanging. Right? This is where a lot of suits come in. Like, oh, I paid you for this. I'm owed this. My insurance should do this. I deserve this. And that's why we love the transactional idea here. We have this mechanical transaction relationship with God. We get to come in and we say, hey, I've done my part. Now you need to do your part. And so if I've done my part and you're now bound, you're uh, in my insurance, God, I've prayed, I've done my stuff, you are in control by me because I've done the transaction. And so what's happened here is this house has turned into a market instead of a place to worship God. Imagine where the Gentiles, the outsiders, they all come in and it's supposed to be a serene place of thinking about atonement and sacrifice and worship. And instead you hear meh, bah, meh, meh, meh. people arguing over all this stuff, trying to exchange this stuff. Hurry, hurry. Let me buy my my creature. Let's kill it. Okay, poof. It's done. See you, God. I've done my duty. This was the tension. And this was supposed to be a place where you dwell with God. Jesus is fired up about it. We struggle so much with this transactional relationship. The heart of this transactional thing is it makes God a client or a boss. He's just a client that responds to us, or he's our boss, and we have this transaction that he wants. We decide we can be like God. It's a power play, we're in charge of God. We decide. I'm in charge of the lifelong rat race, and I just pay my pennies to the Lord, do my dues, and he responds to me. This makes Jesus very angry. He uses the word zeal. The Greek word zeal can mean uh, excitement of mind, fierce fervor of spirit. Uh, The root word is boil or hot. This is why when some people try to argue, oh, Jesus wasn't angry. He was just really assertive. No, he was angry. That's what the word means. He was angry and he wasn't sinfully angry. He wasn't out of control, right? It says he crafted a whip. It wasn't like he was like, oh, there's a whip. Also, by the way, the word whip here in Greek isn't like this leather thing that you abuse people with. It's literally like dried grass, like I was going to have an analogy where I tried to bring Joe up here and I was going to try to whip him with a few things and see which one hurt worse and prove that, but it's not worth it. But the point is, Jesus really couldn't hurt people with this. Like, like the, I mean, maybe if you tried really hard, maybe you poked him in the eye, but the, way, the point was, Jesus wasn't trying to be wildly out of control here. It was calculated, it was in control, and he was angry because they were making the house of God into a market. The Hebrew word that this comes from uh, means jealous or passionate. It's first used in Numbers to talk about a husband jealous for an adulterous wife. What an interesting thing for John to quote this phrase that reminds us of this broken relationship in a marital covenant just after this wedding story that we got last week. More on that. Look at the sermon last week and how John's weaving these themes together. Jesus comes in and he turns these things over, flips the tables. He says he says that this house can either be a market or my father's house it cannot be both one or the other if it is a market a mechanical trade relationship then it's based off fear you never really know that's like all other temples you're just trying to appease the gods just come in here do your thing cut yourself sacrifice and then maybe the god will be happy on you jesus says no 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 this isn't this isn't my father's house my father's house in a father relationship you have a Lord who accepts, we, you accept who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And you get to live with the Lord. You get to look and see God has always wanted to have a right relationship with you in this tension. And so Jesus is angry with the mechanical relationship. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, but it makes you wonder, do you have a mechanical relationship with God? If... I do, then God does. This is how it works. It's an equation. I do my part, God does his part. That's Mormonism, right? I need to do all these things. I need to back these things up. I need to do this. So many other religions are based off that. You can go through, through, you look at the Muslim faith, you can look at Mormonism, you can look at uh, uh, Hinduism. It's all, I do these things, then the God does these things. And then I've made it right. Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to drive these things out. Because there's something new coming. There's a new temple. There's a new Passover. There's something finally here that's different. That's anger. Raise your hand if you want to talk about Passover next. Raise your hand if you want to talk about the temple next. Sorry, Passover people. We're not Hebrew enough this morning for you. Temple, that's true. Touche. Zeal for your house. Will consume me. Uh, by the way, when we're talking, nope, we're still going. Uh, zeal for your house will consume me. All ancient people knew and believed in some sort of mystery beyond what they see and know. They all had some idea of beyond. Many of them had some form of a temple. I can even argue most of them if you look at uh, how, how ancient cultures uh, function. What is temple? What is a temple? A house of a deity. It's roughly defined, it's a sacred space. Uh, There's going to be some words on the screen that might help you with that. Uh, It's where heaven and earth, eternal and temporal, supernatural and natural intersect, cosmic crossroads, one scholar says. The temple, Tim Keller says this, I love it. The temple is the place where you find the one thing that can't fully be explained, but explains everything else. And we talked about this last year in June. We talked about the floor, right? We talked about everything is connected to an objective source. (laughs) Many uh, or most of uh, these cultures had temples. Um, if you think about the temple in Bible history, the temple is supposed to be where God dwells with man. In fact, there's some images that really help with that. Um, so here you have heaven, which is God's face, and earth. And originally those overlapped. God created a good world. It was called Eden, and we lived in it, and we had a right relationship with him. And then it got separated because of sin, rebellion, death. We decided to go our own way. And this idea of God constantly giving them his presence through the tabernacle, through the temple at Mount Sinai, when he speaks and he walks with, with Abraham's other people, the idea was this little spot, it overlapped this purple spot. It's the temple. It's where heaven and earth intersect. And that's why you see this constant idea of heaven invading our space. Jesus coming in. John goes to great length to say the word became flesh. The uh, And you see in uh, Revelation, right? We don't poof, go up there. It comes down here, right? Jerusalem comes down. Heaven and earth overlap. The whole idea of temple was it was sacred space where you get to be with God because you've chosen to be apart from God. You've chosen your own transactional thing. You've chosen sin and death. Say, I'm going to do my own thing. And so you're destined for death. You're destined for eternal separation. And the temple was the place where you got to dwell with God. Every other temple You bring the sacrifice to bridge the gap. And Jesus comes in, overturns everything and says, no, no, no. I'm the temple. More on this next week. Jimmy will cover it. But he says, I'm the temple. He's bridging the gap. Jesus, last week we saw, completed this whole marriage motif. All through scripture you have this idea of marriage. We talked about the Bible nerdy stuff and how over and over there's this idea of marriage. And that God didn't give us this cute analogy of marriage because people were being married. And God said, oh, hey, maybe you should think about me like that. No, 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 no. Marriage comes from God's relationship with us. It was always meant to define that. And that's why broken marriages are so aggravating and hurtful and painful. That's why it ripples. That's why those of you who understand understand divorce or have seen your parents ripped apart or you you know, someone whose marriage is being ripped apart, it hurts you so much and you still bear the scars and you have to get marriage counseling when you get married because your parents are divorced and it causes all this tension because it's a constant painful ripple because evil hates it. Evil sees marriage as a, a God's relationship with us. He says, no, I got to ruin that. I don't want anyone to think through this is what God really wants. So I need to make sure it's destroyed, broken. Sex is the same way, by the way. Twisted, confused in our culture, can't possibly remind us of who God is because it's gross, marriage, bad. And so Jesus comes in. Last week we saw He completes this marriage thing, this this right thing. He makes the marriage right, and now He's completing this temple practice. Instead of saying the temple is the place where you're going to go to be with God, now Jesus says, No, 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 I'm bringing a temple that bridges the gap for you. You don't bridge the gap. I'm bridging the gap. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might have a right relationship with God. Things might be made right. He made him who knew no sin become sin. Jesus became sin. He became the sacrifice. More on that when we talk about Passover. Jesus says, I make all other temples obsolete. He's completing. There's no need for animals There's no need for money changers. Clear it out because Jesus is fulfilling it all. Something I learned this week. I hadn't considered that Jesus wasn't just angrily driving out people because they were doing something slightly off. But Jesus was also driving them out because they were no longer needed. And he affirms that when he says later, which we'll talk about next week, I'm the temple. Passover. Here we go. Wait. Wait. Zeal for your house will consume me. This goes back to Psalm 69, being in God's presence in a right relationship with him, as we've seen all through scripture. That's what God's always desired, us to follow him, have a right relationship. with. Maybe you right now feel like you don't have a right relationship with him. Well, Jesus is so consumed with having a right relationship with God, with the fact that you can be in his presence, that when he sees people twisting that, he says, no, 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 get out of here, because this is meant to have a right relationship with God, to bridge the gap. If you're in here this morning, you feel like I don't have a right relationship with God. I don't know God. In fact, I feel distant from him. I can't follow what you're saying. I I don't know the Lord. If you're watching from home, Jesus came to bridge the gap to fulfill all these things. He became sin. Zeal for his father's house consumed him, literally ate him up. We'll talk about in just a moment because he cared about the dwelling place of God being with man. He cared about God being with man in a right relationship, not separated by evil sin and death. Whatever you feel like you've got that separates you from God. Jesus obliterates that. He took it on. He died for you and rose again so that through faith in him, you are made right. You get to be in a right relationship with God. Amen? Amen. And you know it. If you know you have a right relationship with God, you know that to be true. You say, man, I'm thankful that I'm not constantly trying to appease the Lord because I can't. King Jesus has done it. He's our advocate. Passover was a major festival for the Hebrews and all sorts of, uh, all the Hebrew people. Every male that was 12 years or older would come. And if they lived in a 15 mile radius, they'd have to uh, flood the temple to make sacrifice. It was a big deal, right? And there are all sorts of geeky things we could talk about, about Passover to understand it. But Jerusalem became packed full of people, which is why they think that the money changers were more interested in being in the Gentile courts because that's where they made a lot of money during this time, right? That's where that whole argument comes from. But the idea was so many people were in Jerusalem to do this Passover thing. John has done something to draw you in. There are four, arguably five Passovers in the book of John, and John narrates a story based off it. Do you remember the first time you got a hint of Passover in the book of John? We talked about it. John the Baptist, he looks at Jesus and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, John's just like saying, hey, duh, here it is, right for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one that's going to be sacrificed, right? And then later on, we just saw last week or two weeks ago, time, time flies. But how Jesus is turning water into wine, and we talk about how wine was also a symbol of constantly understanding that Passover lamb, that it was a moment to remember God, that he rescued them. This is why wine was celebratory, because it not only just reminded them of the fruit of the vine, of God creating on the third day and on the sixth day, those sort of things, but it also reminded them that God rescued them through the Passover lamb. Wine was always meant to symbolize blood. And so John's pulling you in. Jesus is the blood. Jesus is the one that's bringing the better wine. His blood will bring the atonement. And now John starts his story. What does it say? John 2 verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. We're supposed to frame this whole story in the Passover. Thinking about this Passover. Uh, What uh, what does it say Jesus does on the Passover? We've already talked about this because you chose, you know, differently. And so, but he walks in and what does he drive out again? The money changers and what else? Man, make your best animal noise. Go. That's good enough. Man, I didn't expect anyone to do that. So you're you're my people, right? Why did everyone do a goat? Does anyone have another animal noise they want to get out? Cuckoo. That's fantastic. Cuckoo, cuckoo. So, uh, <laughs> what has happened? Uh, so he drives out the animals. Here's what's interesting. The animals he drives out are significant. Do you know what all these animals were animals for? They're all animals for sacrifice. You know what kind of sacrifice? peace offering atonement. They're all sacrificial animals specifically for sin atonement for a peace offering before the Lord. What would happen is these larger animals and then for people who were poor where they'd have the doves, um, uh, the pigeons, sorry, then they would purchase those. They would be for atonement. You can see that in Leviticus 1, Leviticus 3. And then there was a lamb sacrifice as well. Um, this was twice daily burnt offering of the lamb. Um, and it was also a Passover reminder, right? And so they'd have the sheep here in different mentions. What is atonement. We need to talk about that for a minute. I had a whole six minute video. We can post it online soon you later, but atonement, it's the Hebrew word kippur. And it means not, sometimes we mix it up. We think it only means one thing. It means to cover or repay a debt, but it also means to purify. And that's important because if it just meant one, then we'd get confused and you'd start twisting who God was, or you'd twist who you are. But so God gave them this analogy of atonement, not because God is sick and sadistic and he wants animal blood everywhere, but because blood was the sign of life. And so you'd have this atonement. They wouldn't just sacrifice the animal and have their blood. They would sprinkle the blood everywhere like, like detergent. They would sprinkle it and say, hey, this is life blood. This is blood that is atoning. It's purifying. It's paying a debt. And so this space that has blood all over is now sacred. This temple space is now holy because it's been purified. It's been, it's been paid for. But then also these animals have, have paid for. They've, they've created this relationship. And it was a constant reminder that our sin is this bad. Our rebellion is this bad. That, that we need to constantly be reminded that we have hurt and separated and broken our relationship with God. And so these animal sacrifices were to remind us of that. And this was constantly happening. It wasn't just bloody animal sacrifices. It was a symbol of, of trust, of life, obedience, life for life. Something has to die to cover sin and rebellion, to purify. Jesus' whole act of cleansing this temple during Passover, it reminds us of constant prophets doing the same thing. You can look at Ezekiel. You can look at Jeremiah. You can look at uh, Hosea. You can look at these different prophets who went and did things, uh, ceremonially speaking, or do these weird acts to say, hey, look, your worship's off. You've desecrated the temple. You've desecrated these sacred moments that were supposed to be connected to the Lord. And so they would do these things to not just say, hey, you need to start doing actions right. Jesus' point wasn't, hey, get your stuff together and do these actions perfectly. The issue was the heart. We know that because the psalmist wrote in Psalms 51 the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Jesus comes to the temple on Passover to declare that he is the sacrifice. Nothing else is needed. Jesus is the blood that covers everything. By his blood, we are healed. And so whatever you think you need to bring to this, whatever equation you think you've got, oh, I bring this, I do this, it's a lie. It's a trap. We'll talk about that here in a minute. First John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, that's for all of us in the room. You read that first part, I'm writing these things so you don't sin. You're like, oh, Hold on, John, I got, I got some confession before you go further. Now he says, ah, but if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, rebel against God, break God's desires, live outside of what God desires, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sin, but the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation has roots connected to atonement. It's this whole idea that he's the one that's purifying. He's the one that's cleansing. He's the one that paid the debt. When you sin, we have an advocate. Just as we've said before, Jesus stands before the Father, and he advocates for you. You don't go to the temple and make sacrifices. Because Jesus advocates for you. Do you believe in Jesus in this way? Do you trust in Jesus to advocate for you? There's this tension in our culture to have, uh, we could talk about consumerism for a long time. And if you, you want to hear more on that, we've talked about uh, distractions. We've talked about things in our culture that can pull us away. But in general, because of the blessings and benefits that we have in our culture, in our country, being the wealthiest country that's that's ever existed, the, all these different things that we have, We love to have more. It's a constant cry of our heart. I want more. Nothing's ever enough. Everything needs to be made more. In fact, this is the whole tension that Jesus is reminded of when he's seeing this mechanical exchange. They're constantly making idols. I don't want to do a whole sermon on idols, but I want you to remember this. An idol is something that always requires more and more and more of you and gives you less and less and less. I can give you so many examples of that. Your money, your stuff, Your ideal relationships requires more and more and more of you and gives you less and less and less because you craft these things to be something that they're never meant to hold. They can't hold God's sustaining glory, his provision, drugs, sex, addictions. They require more and more and more of you and give you less and less and less. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. And so we have this consumeristic mentality. We want more and more and more, and it just brings us less and less and less. And so Jesus steps in, he says, in this situation, do you have a consumerism belief or trust? We talked last week <clears throat> about how the word trust and belief goes together. When John's telling you to believe, he's telling you to trust. Do you actually trust? That's what the word means. Hebrew and Greek, you go back, faith, uh, faith and belief, they all come back to the word trust. Do you trust? in him? Or do you have a mechanical transactional relationship with Jesus? He's your boss and client. You just need to do your thing. I've got the newest devotional. I've listened to the newest Louis Giglio thing. I've done my prayers for the day, check my boxes, wash it, gas it, give me the keys. I got the oil change with the Lord. So I'm okay. Is that, is that how you approach the Lord? Is that the right relationship that he intended in a father, daughter, son relationship where you intimately are together and you get to dwell together and abide now? But is that the struggle? The word, the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil have this equation for us. What I do plus what people say and think about what I do equals my worth or value. Think about that because that's all of us in this room. We've been taught, and maybe you're the person, I don't care what nobody thinks. Yes, you do. There's someone you care what they think, even if it's you. You care what you think. What you do plus what people say and think about what you do equals your value. And this leads you into the never-ending rat race of pursuing what you think is life, what you think is best, to have more and more and more, to have this transactional relationship with the Lord where you do the right thing and then he blesses you and you get everything you want. And then when it doesn't work out, then it's his fault and you get distant. Maybe some of you are in there right now. Church wasn't what you expected to be. The Bible wasn't what you expected to be. God wasn't what you expected to be. I wanted this for my life and I didn't get it. And what I did, plus what people say about what I did didn't work out. So my value stinks or you blame them. Their value stinks. Here's what the Bible says. Here's the truth. What Jesus has said and done plus nothing equals your worth and value. Jesus comes into the temple. He flips it all upside down and says, get this out of here. This isn't a marketplace. I'm the temple. I'm the sacrifice. I fulfill the temple. I fulfill Passover. I have zeal, anger, because this is all twisted and I'm the only one that can make it right. What Jesus has said and done plus nothing equals or value more. If you have this proclivity to constantly be angry, tense, insecure, if it goes deeper, you, uh, depression, uh, suicide, all these tensions, I promise you, There's something going on missing out on where your value lies in Christ. And that's not to negate any sort of medication and getting help from people. Those things are a blessing from God and that's important, but your life is not what you do. Plus what people say about what you do. That's not your value. Jesus is everything. We, uh, we're blessed in our church where several of our graduates, uh, and Tisha would say this if she could come talk in, several of our graduates, they stick around. We have young adults in our church. And if you watch the trend of church life and ministry, having young adults in church is constantly a challenge because they don't like to, they're, they're busy, they're transit. They're, they're doing stuff, they don't like to commit to things. They come and go. And if you have a young adult in your life, or you are a young adult, you can agree with us. Hey, I got stuff going on. Maybe I'll be there, maybe I won't. What times the movie start? Maybe I'll come late. Maybe I won't be there. Maybe I'll be there an hour early. You never know, right? That's their life. And it's been that way for a long time, right? That's kind of young adults. But we have a lot that are sticking in our church. And so we've been asking the question of other churches, hey, what are we doing with this this 18 to 28-year-old group of people? And some of them met with uh, Tisha. She put together this great meeting with several churches, and we were meeting on Friday. And this girl said something I can't get past. She said, I asked her, why are you sticking around? Like, why are you guys going to church? Because I I can be kind of pessimistic. I was like, I mean, honestly, you know, if some of this stuff, you know, what what makes you stick around with it if churches haven't provided a good space for you? Because that was the whole tension in this group. And she said, the reason we gather and we stick around is because we've tried everything else. And nothing else is true or real. And this is true and real. And so we stick around because there's something here We've tried everything else. And she said, she spoke for so many other people that she's toxic, man, we've tried everything else and and nothing else is real. We want to, to be around something authentic church. I want to challenge you with something because that's true at every level, whether you are 99 years old or 15, 10, five, two years old, whatever age you are, everyone wants something real. Everyone wants life. Everyone wants truth. And if you have this idea that our church is going to grow and you have some ideal, Bonhoeffer said, when you make church an ideal, you kill it. But if you have some idea in your head, oh, well, if only our church would do this, we fill the seats, we do these sort of things. What you do is you take this equation and you shift it to say, what we do, Memorial Baptist Church or any church, plus what people observe about what we do, equals our value. So if we have the sickest music, if we have the most excited pastor who doesn't preach too long, shut up, and we have all these things, we work out this equation. And and he says all the right things, then all these empty seats will be filled. We'll have to get more seats coming out. People will come out of their ears because they will realize we're valuable. We're so cool. We're so hip. We're so trendy. And that's not what anyone's saying. They're saying they want something real. If you're looking around and you're saying, "Man, why is our church growing? How does our church do more stuff?" The reason people aren't here is because maybe you're not inviting them. Maybe you have a transactional relationship with God where you believe maybe we do. God forgive us. Maybe Memorial actually believes that it's on us to be super hip and cool and the gospel's enough. Church, listen to me. If you're a member of Memorial, do you believe the gospel's enough? because I promise you that we preach the gospel every week and I don't know how to do it better. So maybe we need to get someone better, but it's not all on me. It's not all on Adam or Jimmy or whoever to be super cool. It's not all on Carrie's plans or Bridget's plans. Jesus is enough. And we declare him every Sunday. We declare him every Wednesday night. We declare him every moment. And so if we're not experiencing lives change, which we are, if we're not seeing people come to Christ and stories of redemption, which we are, if those things ever grow sour or cold or off, it's solely because we no longer believe in the gospel. We believe in hip music, cool lights, and trendy pastors who have kitschy ideas. Those things come and go. They get fired. You forget about them. Tell me your favorite thing a pastor 15, 20 years ago said here. You hardly remember it. You've had so many pastors of this church, they've come and gone. Jesus lasts forever. Jesus has fulfilled the Passover, the temple, marriage, everything. As we move to close and we move to have a response, I want to remember Jesus' words. He says, zeal for your house will consume me. He's quoting King David. And we've got a slide for it. I don't know. I did it out of order. So Joe might not be able to find time. But when King David says it, he says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And John has it quoted. Zeal for your house will consume me. Literally means be devoured by. Jesus' zeal, his passion, his anger for us having a right relationship with God, for you being able to stand before God and be made right literally killed him it consumed him on your behalf and john has it written specifically so that when we read it thousands of years later we see wait what's going on in this story this passion is going to consume him and then the jews go against him immediately the next story jimmy's going to tell us the jews fight him and this is what's brought up at his trial this is the moment they kill him for because he claims to be something more he says i'm the temple i'm equated why because his passion for you to have a right relationship with God killed him because he was the sacrifice. He wants you to have a right relationship with God. He wants the people of Jeff City to know King Jesus and follow him, to not be eternally separated into hell. Jesus both fills our tables and he flips them. This morning as we respond, I want you to think about that. Maybe there's areas in your life like, I I just need Jesus to fill me because this is incomplete. And you tell me Jesus is everything, but I'm struggling. And I hear these analogies about Passover temple, and and I just don't see it being completed. Open your hands this morning during this time response. Don't get distracted. Listen to the Lord and say, God, I need fulfilled. I need something. But maybe there's something in your life that needs flipped because we need a Savior who does both. We need a Savior that walks into the temple of your heart and says, These things cannot be in my father's house. I dwell in you and these things don't belong. Paul picks up on the same analogy later to talk about sexual morality. Maybe that's you. Maybe there's something in your life that needs flipped this morning and you know it. We've been praying for you that Jesus would speak. His spirit's moving right now. You say, man, I need need to open my hands Say, Jesus. I need you to take this from me. You are the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to pray as you need to respond. You can come down here and pray. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you want to join the church. I don't know how you need to respond, but we pray the spirit moves and you think through how Jesus is everything. He's the only one that can fill everything in your life. He's the only one that can flip the things that are broken that need to be pulled out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this time to hear your word. Father, may we believe and trust that Jesus is everything. During this time of response, as we we look to you, as we sing, I pray your spirit would be moving amongst those that are here, that, that you would give us boldness to respond for the things in our life that we need to, to let go of, to quit mechanically trying to transact with you and to trust that you are everything. God, I pray that your spirit would bring conviction and repentance, that we would turn and look to you. I pray our church would be a place that consistently grows to to be a house of prayer, a a, a place for you to dwell that we can show other people your glory. God, show our church what we need to repent of. Guide us as we respond in your spirit. Despite all the words, despite any time-constrained things, anything that's in our mind that could distract us, I pray your spirit would move. Thank you for your love for us.